Hello, I'm Paco Alvarez, and this is the backstory from Type Investigations, where we sit down with one of our reporters and ask them to take us behind the scenes of their work. This episode is a discussion from 2019 between former Type Investigations intern Hannah Beckler and journalist Lisa Armstrong about her investigation when solitary confinement is a death sentence, produced in partnership with HuffPost. Investigative journalist Lisa Armstrong has for several years reported on solitary confinement and the treatment of mental illness in prison. In her most recent story, published with the Huffington Post and a documentary airing on CBS, Armstrong recounts the tragic story of a young woman diagnosed with serious mental illness and violently sent to solitary confinement multiple times before she died by suicide. Type Investigation's backstory spoke with Armstrong about the challenges of reporting on such a delicate topic and how she gained access to the hundreds of documents, videos, and photos necessary to tell this story. What first sparked your interest in this story? I was doing some reporting on solitary confinement, juvenile solitary confinement, and I found a story about this young woman, Mariam Abdullah, who had died by suicide in an Arizona prison. And this was back in August of 2016 when I first saw the story. And so I was just struck by the fact that one, she was so young, she had just turned 18. And there was a letter that was attached to the article that was from a lawyer, Corrine Kendrick, who works with the prison law office in California. And she'd written a letter on her behalf, basically indicating that Mariam had been held in solitary confinement for a long period of time, and then asking for her to be moved to someplace where she could help get help for her mental illnesses. And so it struck me that there'd been this letter written on her behalf, and yet she died. And I sort of just wanted to figure out what had happened to her. I think that article obviously sparked an interest in wanting to understand what had happened in her case. But I think that in filing a FOIA and um, trying to get documents and whatever I could from the Arizona Department of Corrections and then getting video of use of force against Miriam. So these are basically instances where they were trying to take her to a suicide watch cell and there were instances where there had been a lot of violence in terms of like her being thrown to the ground or being taken like one person holding each of her limbs and her struggling. And those really struck me because I, I knew at the time that she'd had she'd had prior suicide attempts or there are things that I knew about her backstory and to see her being held in this way. I don't know. It just sort of raised a lot of questions as to why, like, why did this happen um, and what exactly happened in her case? Well, it's an incredibly delicate topic mm-hmm. when you're reporting on mental illness as well as someone who's so young and someone who tragically died by suicide. So do you have any advice for other reporters who are considering reporting on something as delicate as this? I think there there are two parts of this. The trickiest thing for me with this story was speaking with Mariam's mother. She never actually did end up speaking on the record. I've had several conversations with I imagine. Speaking about the videos, I read that you used some 200 documents, videos, and photographs in your reporting. I'm wondering if you could walk us through how you obtained those sources and why you think you were able to gain access to so many. Over the years, um, but she's never really wanted to be part of any stories. And when I first spoke with her, I had spoken with her because I had all of these videos and I had all of this information that she didn't have. And so part of 
the concern for me was sharing information with her about her child and not knowing how she would react. And actually, the first one of the first conversations I had with her, um, I was telling her that I couldn't just send her this material because I didn't know how it would impact her. And she, at a certain point, just broke down and was sobbing. And I think it's very hard just as another person, and especially as a mother, to hear someone crying over the death of her child and not really be able to do anything and to know that you, in some ways, have kind of opened up this box that maybe she'd wanted to close. So I think it's just really, I think empathy is important, Um, trying to think of what the other person might be going through. Um, And I feel like that's an important reporting tool, regardless of the subject matter. But then the other issue is that obviously Miriam's not here to speak for herself in terms of what she would want shared with the world. And so there were certain things that I discovered in my reporting that I opted not to share just because I felt... Not that they weren't necessarily relevant to the story, but I just felt like I would be exposing certain vulnerabilities that I don't know if she were here to speak for herself that she would want made public. And then the last part of that is just also just self-care. When I did start going through the videos that I got from the Arizona Department of Corrections, I was watching them one after another, and I just sort of broke down at a certain point because it was just so hard to see. And I know, obviously, the Department of Corrections would say, well, we needed to take her by force. We needed to do this. So I know that there's another side to the story and an explanation for why she was taken in this way. But again, I, I was looking at these videos and... Yes, I'm a journalist and I'm trying to see all sides, but I'm also a person and I'm looking at a video of a child, basically. And it was just something that was really hard to watch. And there were moments where I had to just sort of back off of the reporting for a moment and just go do something else because it it became really intense. Speaking about the videos, I read that you used some 200 documents, videos, and photographs in your reporting. I'm wondering if you could walk us through how you obtained those sources and why you think you were able to gain access to so many. So I filed the FOIA in, I believe, March or April of 2017. And in speaking with Corrine, and she's the attorney at the prison law office, she's the one who told me to ask for the use of force videos. Like that was something that she was very specific that I should ask for that. I asked for a number of different things as well. And it took about nine months for them to finally send me what I'd asked for. And at the point where they sent it, I actually had found a lawyer because I kept following up with them and they kept (laughs) giving me sort of the runaround. And um, the lawyer actually didn't need to get involved. He he said, send them an email worded this way. And I don't know if it, it... the language prompted them to do something or if it was just a coincidence, but then they sent me all of these documents. And honestly, I don't know why they sent me all of this other than, you know, I requested it. I feel like it doesn't necessarily paint the department in the best light, but I'm I'm, I'm grateful that they actually shared the material that they gave me. They didn't send these videos to Corrine. So there are lawyers who there's even I mean, there are lawyers who've been working on this, who requested the same material and and never received it. So, again, I don't know why they sent all this stuff to me, but I'm I'm grateful that they did. Yeah, of course. Just to follow up on that, um, in terms of timeline, when did you first reach out to some of these uh, institutions? 
So the Arizona Department of Corrections, I reached out to them to get comment. I guess when I started working on these stories, so when I started working on the CBS piece earlier in the spring, that's when I started reaching out to people to say, can we do interviews? And so the Arizona Department of Corrections very promptly said no. Horizon kind of said, we'll see, and then ultimately, no, we don't want to do anything on camera. Wexford, which is another company, just didn't respond at all until like months past of me follow, you know, writing and calling and writing and calling. And finally, the spokesperson wrote an email that started with, you know, thank you for your multiple requests. Like, you know, so I mean, it, it was, it's been months of just following up with people and either them just not responding until the last minute. I mean, I'm actually, you know, we're down to the wire and I'm reaching out to one company again to see if they can provide a statement because they just didn't respond before. Sure. What was your biggest reporting challenge in, in reporting the story out? I, I talk like when, and when I'm teaching students and we're talking about journalism ethics, I talk about it in terms of being able to sleep at night And so navigating this story, especially with Mariam's mother, like sort of in my mind as I was doing this, it was a challenge because I knew that she didn't want to be part of a story. When I first talked to her, she she has not talked to any other journalists. And I was told by someone that part of the reason that no one had done a story about Mariam was that they couldn't get her mother to talk. And then after the first piece, the HuffPost piece came out, Corrine wrote a note to me and she said, I tried to get so many other journalists interested in Mariam's story and they all eventually gave up because they said it was too hard. And it was hard. It was a lot of reporting. But for me, the main thing really was just wanting her mother to be okay with whatever I was publishing. And I know that as journalists, we're not beholden to our sources. But for me, I just felt that this woman has lost her child. Uh, She doesn't really understand what happened. She never really got information from the Arizona Department of Corrections that put her mind. I mean, I don't know if there's anything that could put your mind at ease, but um, that just sort of explained or answered some of the questions that she had. So that was one thing. And I think part of it also was just getting people... I was trying to get people within the prisons to talk about current conditions. And so that was another thing, too. And so I'm really grateful to Wendy Anderson, who is someone who is currently still incarcerated at Perryville. And she's someone who knew Mariam well, and she was willing to talk. Um, We were able to do a a call with her, a video call with her, where she spoke about not just Mariam, about her own experience. And I feel like that's risky for a lot of people who are incarcerated because you don't necessarily know if there's going to be retaliation um and i i think it's 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 mainly just making sure that i did right by the people in my story and ultimately making sure that i did right by mariam which you know i hope i did yeah absolutely well thank you so much again for speaking with us you're welcome (laughs) thank you You can read When Solitary Confinement is a Death Sentence on our website or on HuffPost. Check out our show notes for links to more of Lisa Armstrong's work. A transcript of this backstory is available at typeinvestigations.org backstory.